Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This program contains themes of an adult nature. Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is an Australian LGBTI youth leader. They grew up in regional Victoria, Shepparton, in a time well before Pride Cups and community groups could afford them a happier beginning. From rural Victoria to the big smoke, it's been their quest for a better understanding of gender which has made them a facilitator of change in the queer space of gender-diverse communities. They call the Duchess Meghan Markle their gal pal, and they've actually become quite good friends with the royals, not to mention they're on a mate's basis with Prince Harry. And obviously, they have continued to make headlines for their work in gender equality, youth leadership, and offer support to queer communities globally. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome Jacob Thomas to Word for Word. So for most of my adult life... I've had an interest in the concept of gender. I didn't know what the big wide world would look like outside of Shepparton. Like, I never expected to leave. We're joined by uh, Jacob Thomas, a human rights activist. I believe that all persons of all sexes, genders, sexualities, orientations, abilities, faiths and backgrounds deserve to be seen and treated as equal. But you got to meet Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, a few times. And And the the Queen. Recently appointed Commonwealth Youth Ambassador, this was Prince Harry's chance to meet emerging young leaders from around the world. But Meghan and Harry were, through your work with the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network, and taking a particular shine to a young Australian. It's very common in Australia is that we don't really express our emotions a lot of the time. Is that about your own self-preservation as much as it is helping others? But we're in the midst of a gender revolution, and it's time for us to dive in, head first, and start exploring. Jacob, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Ben? I'm very well. Just recently, you were mm. part of the welcoming committee for Prince Harry and the Duchess Meghan Markle mm-hmm. when they came to Australia. Mm-hmm. How do you get picked to be a part of something like that? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm a Queen's Young Leader of Australia, which means I was picked to receive a human rights award or an award for my human rights work, I should say, from the Queen. Wow. But in addition to that, since 2015, I've been working in the human rights space within the Commonwealth um, as part of an organisation called the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network. 
so through that, I've been able to have some really high-level royal engagements, which is really, really lovely. But yeah, like this year, meeting the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge through the Queen's Young Leaders Award, but then being able to meet the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, i.e. Harry and Meghan, three times this year. So when they came to Melbourne, I already knew that I was going to be invited to that because I met with Meghan in about mid-year this year for like Commonwealth Youth Day and we had a big old chat and I was like, hey, fave gal pal. And she was like, hey, old friend, how are you? Wow. And primarily through my human rights work in gender equality, LGBT rights, but also, I guess, as a young person, being able to move throughout this space and being able to have like great influence. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex are very big on that, which is really, really cool. Just so exciting. And I saw this photo <laughs> of you having this conversation with Prince Harry. Yeah. And this photo is just so amazing because you can see that there's a genuine affinity between you and him. Yeah. Okay, so I want to have a little look into what that conversation was about. Sure. How does a conversation with Prince Harry go? So it's kind of just like touching base and being like, well, cool. How are things going? Yeah. Like, you know, our LGBT work within, you know, SciGen is still going really, really well. It's going really strong. We're still focusing on, you know, gender equality programs. And they're just like, great. That's what we want to hear. It's wonderful to sort of know that is that you don't try and make it about yourself. You know, as an advocate, that's not your job. Mm. But, you know, as an advocate, you're there to speak on people's behalf in a very trusted manner. How do you stay in your own lane and just not get too overwhelmed by it and continue a conversation? I think most importantly for me is that recognising that, yes, in Australia, but also internationally within the Commonwealth, very few of them have full protection laws and I can't represent everyone in that case. What I can do is give people permission if they can take it within their own means and their own capacities and their own ways where you should be able to be authentic. Like, that's a part of freedom. That's what it is. You should be able to have the security and the safety legally to be able to express yourself in a manner that doesn't put you in jail, that doesn't result in a hate crime, that doesn't result in, you know, murder. And I know that I can do that for some people, but I'm not going to say that what I do as a white, quote-unquote, male-passing queer person from a very highly developed country like Australia, living in a metropolitan space like Melbourne, who's you know, got all these other privileges sitting around me. Like, yes, I'm queer and yes, I'm trans, but that doesn't take away the other power that I have. I can't speak on behalf of people in Uganda. I can't speak on behalf of people in Malaysia or Indonesia or Brazil. That's not my space. I might be an avenue for people to actually finally pay attention to that because I'll probably listen to a white voice. But it is not my space to talk on people's behalf. It is my responsibility and my job, I think all of our jobs, to get those people in there and to get them to, where possible, speak on their own behalf. Like, that's my job. It's pretty impressive and quite complicated work. I'll give you an example. When I met Harry and Meghan for the first time, it was in London earlier this year in April for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting because I was on the committee for the Youth Forum helping put the program together. I was chosen as the program lead, which was wonderful. So, you know, that's like 1.2 billion people that you're representing with a cohort of 500 all together in a place like London. That's what I do. And, you know, you got selected to go with one of the LGBT groups to basically sit there and represent. And, you know, I know these people so incredibly well. We've worked together for years. And I was like, look, you know what? Why Aussie? Probably go last. Of course, there's so many issues happening here at home, but I was like, my friend Malusi, for example, 
from Iswatini, so previously called Swaziland, but now back to its traditional indigenous name, Iswatini, ran their first ever Pride March this year with approval from the king and approval from police force. Like, that's a huge movement. I was like, I don't need to take that time up. He needs to be able to pitch that to the royal family, like, to get them on side. And I know that afterwards the media are going to flood to me first. So, within that, it's just like, oh, but maybe you should talk to my friend from Barbados. Maybe you should talk to my friend from Guyana or from Kenya. In that, I'll just be like, look, we as a group did this. I didn't do it. I stood there. I looked pretty. I talked for a little bit. I made them laugh because they complimented my jacket. But at no point did I was I notable. I was there. That was it. And that's still important, but it's not more important than these massive just powerful young people who are working with their prime ministers, working with their presidents, trying to overturn centuries of colonial law that imprisons and kills their communities every single day. My job in that is to be able to say, well, you know, my friend Jonah from Kenya is brilliant and this is what he does. He could tell you more. My friend from XYZ does this and they could tell you more about that and just trying to make that space. But it doesn't always work, but you need to start with trying to make that happen. Well, we're going to get into more of that, but we're also going to get into the origins of yourself. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Victoria, regional Victoria and Shepparton. Mm-hmm. What were you like as a youngster? If we're being honest, like incredibly depressed, very, very withdrawn and very lonely. You know, I didn't really have a lot of really deep, strong friendships like I do now. I definitely wasn't out, but I was definitely perceived to be lesser. I don't know how far the homophobia necessarily extended to, but I definitely wasn't exactly appreciated or loved. Which is a really hard headspace to be in. What about your siblings? How many siblings did you have growing up? So I've got two older blood brothers. I've got three older stepbrothers. A very mask family, super mask, which is the same for me. I'm just super mask. What impact did that have on you then for your childhood, being surrounded in such a male-dominated space? I didn't necessarily grow up with boys don't cry, like hard in the f- up or anything like that so much. I didn't grow up with that like really toxic machismo. But what I think really lacked, which I don't think is just a queer community thing, I think this is just a people thing. It's very common in Australia is that we don't really express our emotions a lot of the time. We're not given space to cry or just feel hurt. And like I cried a lot as a kid, like all the time. And my brothers, I think at the time were like, okay about it in a manner like they're 10 and 14 years older than me so there's like a massive gap yeah right like we're a farming family like you know my brothers would be out milking cows and like same with my dad and my mum it was this thing of just like it's okay to cry when people hurt you like that's perfectly fine like if you're getting bullied of course you're gonna cry but stop being so sensitive was the hard part about that and I think it's just so like there's a bit of contradiction in that it's just like well to be sensitive means to be open to feeling your emotions and expressing them and trying to not attribute, you know, negative self-talk or, like, bad thoughts about yourself to yourself. And that was quite stifled, <laughs> I think, within that. And I don't think I'm alone in that at all. I don't think anyone who still grows up in Australia is uh, not experiencing that at any point during their day or during their life. So, I wouldn't call it, like, toxic necessarily, but it was definitely stunted in some capacity. What was it that your parents taught you growing up? 
Um, I mean, it was interesting. Like, my parents divorced when I was nine, and that was quite messy and quite traumatic. I think, you know, there was a gentleness that I was given into, but also, like, a a sternness, not from them, but to learn to be quite stern and to hold your ground and to really, like, you've got to buck up because we're not always going to be there. So you've got to learn to, like, look after yourself. That doesn't mean, like, punching someone, but it means, like, getting quite quick and, you know, learning comebacks and everything, which is why I've got a motor mouth, because that's my defense mechanism. Like, that's a large part of that. It's good that you can recognize that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it's like a, you know, good or bad defense mechanism. I think it's just what I grew up with. And it's, you know, helpful and it's very convenient in a lot of ways. But I would say that, like, you know, they were emotionally encouraging. Like, it was good, but also they were just so like, we don't know what to do with this either. Like, you're very different to your brothers. Like, my blood brothers very, I guess, like, strong in their own ways. They're very staunch in their beliefs. You know, they're very traditional, I think. You know, still ve- they're very hetero, they're very straight versus me, who's just like, maybe we can look at this in a different way. Ah, oh, but what about this? And we still kind of bicker about that as well. Versus my mum now, her progress over the years, going through that awful divorce, going through relearning through education, like, you know, being, like, my number one ally as well, who I've come out to, like, three times now as, like, gay, then queer, and now, you know, trans non-binary. Every single time, she's just so sort of like, okay, cool. Just like, well, you deserve to be happy, so we'll work on that. That's totally fine. Versus, like, the men in my family who are always just like, oh, don't, I don't get it. Like, okay, cool, that's fine, whatever. So, you see, like, these really interesting, like, dynamics. I think that's a very interesting dynamic for you to be in because a lot of other Australian, maybe Australian men, Mm. that are having difficulty understanding the LGBTI community. Absolutely. This is the thing, right, is I think, broadly speaking, I don't think a lot of people are actually threatened by us. I think they're threatened by what community is actually able to own in and of itself you know like i think a beautiful part of queerness as concept and lived experience is actually being able to move away from those rigid ideas around what you're meant to be as man or woman or whatever your identity may be and how that's formed i mean like one of the most beautiful things that i love about the community that i've been able to build and the family that i've been able to found for myself is that you know we're not scared of being affectionate We're not scared of, like, physical touch. Like, we can cuddle without it being, like, sexualized or weird or anything like that. We can, like, just talk openly about our feelings without it being a bad thing. Like, we check in with each other. And considering so many of my friends are queer men in particular, many of whom are cis, it's this really interesting thing where we're still all quite uncomfortable with it because we're trying to, like renegotiate our own space within the world, but also renegotiate the ways in which we found these relationships, that they don't have to be defensive. They don't have to be closed off. And they also don't have to then floodlight in the other direction either of here is my everything. Here are all of my traumas, all of my skeletons. Here's my everything. It's that you get to be comfortable being open. And I think a lot of straight people could really learn from that. I love listening to you explain things because I come from a place of continuously learning. I'm continuously having to adopt different ways of looking at life. Where does your ability to articulate yourself come from? It's a really good question. Like, I am actually exploring this with my psychologist at the moment. A lot of my 
ability to articulate and deconstruct and everything partly comes from a love of academia and a love of researching and studying and sitting in the messiness of humans' experiences, but also because this is one of the ways in which I was able to validate myself throughout my life was be smart. Yeah, I was never going to be fit and be an athlete. I was never going to be, you know, the best at doing things which would be like traditionally sound or that would be considered valuable where, you know, you're going to be rewarded or awarded for being thin enough, mask, any of these sorts of things. So I just got myself really smart. Then that sort of also comes into dealing with my trauma and, you know, like I live with PTSD. I live with PTSD, panic disorder, major depressive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. So there's a lot going on in my head at all times. But I think what comes with being able to own that and in my in my privileged capacity is being able to work through that and recognize that I'm also very emotionally intelligent, is that to get people to understand you, you have to meet people where they are. And it's exhausting to have to do that. But I recognize that I can't build... It's got, Well, it's not that I can't. It's that it's a, more of a struggle to build those really founded, strong relationships without understanding how people work and how they're going to respond to things, reading how people respond to what can be very confronting, very uncomfortable information, but making it palatable, getting people to meet you where you are by meeting them where they are. Like, it's about bridging gaps. I think as well, then being an advocate... <laughs> You've got to explain some really, really complex stuff to people who might not get it, but they want to try and get it, or to people who just really don't want to try and understand you at all, but you've got to bring, you've got to rehumanize your community because these people just don't care at the end of the day. So you've then got to take that time. So I think it's like a mixture of things. I think it's about responsibility, ownership of self, self-discovery, and then also recognizing where your defenses are. What age would you say you became aware of your intelligence being something that it set you apart? Definitely wasn't while I was in um, primary school or high school. I know that much. Like, it might have been because I think I was very emotionally intelligent as a child, but that kind of got stunted a little bit with trauma. A a severe amount of bullying in primary school, which continued into high school because Shep's a small town. So you're probably going to see the same people. Uh, But then also not necessarily being academically brilliant either. Like, I was good. Like, I was a good student, but not brilliant. I think it was, like, honestly, when I moved to Melbourne, I, like, did my university degree. Like, I did a BA in, like, gender studies and sociology with a minor in metaphysics. And everyone was just like, what's that going to get you? It's like, I don't know, Susan, but I'm working with the UN now, so pew pew, finger guns. <laughs> but, you know, I like, I love theories. I love messy sort of stuff. And it's, it opens your eyes and it opens your perspectives to read things that you don't agree with, to have to, like, think critically about how the world actually works and where people's opinions come from and how they're formed and, like, even having to check your own bias. And once you get that and that opens you up, you then realise that you can't ever actually switch it back off. Like, you start seeing things in a really, really different way. So, I'd say it was, like, early 20s that I started to really move into feeling comfortable and, like, understanding the world in this very, very complex way and trying to make sense of it, but also in owning that part of my difference wasn't something to use against other people, but was a wonderful attribute of my own that I was able to grow over time. Were you able to work out a coping mechanism for that bullying? Because obviously it was repetitive and it was targeted and it was malicious, Mm. which is the foundation 
of the term. How did you cope with that? I mean, uh, well, let, let, we'll do some real talk in this one. You know, my first suicide attempt was when I was 10. And I'm not uncomfortable like talking about that. I think that's a real thing that we need to actually discuss. A lot of the time, again, people would probably look at me and just be like, well, that's a big surprise. Like, not even, you know, it wouldn't even blip on the radar because I look very high-functioning. And that's that was the big defense mechanism that I learned was look like you're functioning. That's what you need to do. A bravado. Absolutely. But it's recognising... I didn't know what the big wide world would look like outside of Shepparton. Like, I never expected to leave that place. Like, I nearly dropped out of high school after year nine because I was like, I suck at this. I don't like it. I don't want to do this. And a large part of it was just like, well, I know I'm never going to be, like, popular, and that's fine. And I know I'm not going to get, like, so ridiculously picked on and bullied that I'm going to drop out, but I just need to, like, be safe. I just need to be comfortable enough to coast through. That's what I need to do. So I just need to function. That's it. And that's what I did for a large part of that. I think I still do that quite a bit. Like, uh, worst enemy is myself. I don't think I'm alone in that at all either. I was saying this to my housemate last night. I looked at the past week and I was just like, I just feel like I've done nothing and like nothing of note and nothing of worth. And I just, I just feel like shit. Like I'm just really, really struggling right now. And I just don't feel good about myself. I stopped and I was like, oh no, you've actually, you've actually literally done like eight humongous things in the past week across all of your different jobs. And so great. So own that. But also you could have just had a nothing week. Like why, why are you holding yourself to like such a high standard? And that's a large part, I think, of the coping mechanism that I built up through high school was function, yes, and then try and do better. Don't do too great, but try and do better. So there's, I guess, this internal space within me that's just sort of like, and and not dissimilar to what a lot of our community members deal with either, which is like when you know you're so deeply othered, you're so much out of the mainstream that you kind of hide or you have to excel And there's a lot of research that's gone into this, which is the gay men in particular, is that burnout in, like, early 30s to late 40s because, like, pushed, climbed the ladder, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. And then you burn out because you can't just keep pushing anymore. And you've got to kind of have an awareness of that as well. You've got to learn to be kind to yourself. Like, I I look at myself and I'm just like, I really wish I could have been so kind to 15-year-old me. But I didn't have that opportunity. I didn't have that capacity. I didn't have that resource. But you know what? 15 is now 28. You smashed it. You've absolutely killed it. Be kind to yourself. It seems to me like there was an internal monologue that must have kicked in. Someone that sort of sits on your shoulder. I don't think it was um, just an inner monologue so much. A lot of this really, really stemmed from a destabilized household. And then also getting like horrendously beaten up every single day. Like, I was getting spat on, I was getting, like, punched, I was getting kicked at no teacher intervention, they just didn't even try, didn't get moved from classroom to classroom. Like, I remember distinctly walking out of class one day, sitting in the car with my mum, I just broke down entirely. I was just like, if you teach someone that they're worthless, if you tell someone that they're worthless every single day, they're going to believe it. What was that like for your mother? When she sits there and watches you have a breakdown at that age, what sort of advice does she give you? Uh, she didn't know. 
she didn't know the full extent of it. Like, she knew I was getting beaten up. She knew I was getting bullied. She, like, stormed the principal's office and, like, full-on cracked it. Like, she did her best with what was available to her. You know, she was as powerless as I was. Have you had conversations with her about this now? And like, Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's one of the most beautiful things that we've been able to develop in our relationship with each other is that real honesty with this. Because this is the thing is that like I don't hold a grudge against my parents or my family for like not being able to like, you know, be the cure-all to all of my trauma and all of my struggles. Like, what do you do? You know, at the end of the day. And by no means does I give it permission to have happened. I'm not going to be that person who's just like, I'm just really stronger for it because of all the that I went through. It's like, no, 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 like still a bit damaged. Like, smashed it, but still damaged. Like, I'm going to have to live with that every single day of my life. But now as an adult, we can actually repair the things that didn't quite go right when I was younger. How do you articulate those problems when you're 10? Mm. You know, like, how do you actually do that? But I think that also comes down to a big reason why I do what I do is because no 10-year-old should be having those thoughts and no kid should ever feel like they're not important and that they aren't loved and that they don't deserve to be here. Is there some self-love in a way for the fact that because you did go through these experiences that you have been able to help other people? Yeah, it was interesting. I came back from a visit to Shep a few weeks back and I came across this photo of little me. I think I was like 15 at the time. Like I was like gang rave, like the big year 10 formal. So amazing. Wow, 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 wow. And ooh, that fashion sense was just mm, mint. But um, yeah, I looked at this photo of like little 15 year old me and I just like, I started crying in my childhood room because I was just sort of like, like you just did so fing well like so beyond what I ever expected I would have done I've got to remind myself of that like it's not just service service to community is fundamentally important I think more people could definitely do it but you put the effort in and that's what I have to remind myself all the time like that's an act of kindness to myself is taking stock and stopping and slowing down because I don't want that burnout again. Yeah, I don't want to fall back to that prevalence of when I am exhausted, I talk down to myself and that's when the bad thoughts get in and I've always got to be mindful of that, being kind to myself. I don't know so much if it's just like love yourself because I think that's very hard in the world. But I think we all need to do that and that is to put the effort in. Absolutely. And I think we all need to remind ourselves and to celebrate our successes. 10,000%. I mean, you know, the world doesn't exactly celebrate our communities in the best way. We're often quite terrible at celebrating ourselves and each other. I don't think that's just a community thing. I think it's just a human trait. You've got to rely on yourself. You've got to be your own champion a lot of the time because the people who you need around you aren't always going to be there. They're not going to be able to respond to a text message immediately and validate that. You've got to learn to validate your own success you don't have to you know be phenomenal and brilliant and visible and everything it helps don't worry i get that like trust me it helps but you know just existing in a world that tells you that you shouldn't me that's amazing hold on to that it's a wonderful thing to be able to do you mentioned about the fact that you came out three different times obviously one of those times is about coming out as 
gay, but then you had an awakening about gender, and so you came out for your gender. Was that the second time? That was the third time. So what's the one in the middle? The middle one was queer. Yeah. Can you, in your words, to describe the difference between all the, those three? Like, I moved to Melbourne in 2008 for uni, and I was just like, I'm free. This is amazing. Where's the dick at? This is great. Ba 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 And then realised, oh, maybe... <laughs> Maybe this is one terrible and I don't want it. But then I was just like, ah, I don't think that this is like how it works. Like I've had girlfriends, like I've had like interest in women and I've had interest in dudes, like not understanding, like just being like, oh, gender's only binary. Classic 18 year old Jacob. I was just like, maybe just you actually feel different about different people and that's okay too. So what do you want to actually call yourself? I was like, well... Jacob would be ideal, but if I have to pick a label, then queer. So I'll just own that. It was just this nice, fluid, flexible sort of space that I was able to sit in really comfortably and, you know, being able to come into a space that a lot of people had fought incredibly hard for to one, reclaim that word, which I understand is still very traumatic for a lot of our trailblazers and our older community members. So at no point am I going to say, you must do that. And then it wasn't for, like, a good few years after that I said this in my TEDx talk where I had dropped a friend off at at Flinders Street and just this thought just, like, passed just across me. I was just like, maybe male isn't right either. Let's just sit with that. Whatever. It took a couple of years and then I got to meet some phenomenally just wonderful and generous non-binary and genderqueer people. And they were just like, oh, my pronouns are they and them. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's the language that I needed. That's exactly what I wanted. That's a good fit. I think like the best way I can describe it is from a blog called Gender Terror, which I use quite a bit in my presentations, especially when I'm teaching students, where it's just all like, you know, some days, you know, some shirts fit better than others. And so some people are just really comfortable with the one shirt that they got given and it just fits. It's perfect. and It's great. Other people change shirts all the time. You know, maybe they try on a dress. You know, it just depends. But hey, we all take time to get ready in the morning, right? Well, you know me. (laughs) I think it's important for us to just kind of acknowledge that gender isn't notional. Mm. You know, identity isn't fixed. Like, you know, we try and find our space. I think our communities do this a lot because we fucking have to. We have to carve out space in the world a lot of the time. I mean, that's what trailblazers fought for. That's literally what so many of them fought for was the ability to just exist without being like, you know, locked up and murdered and everything as well. All the privileges that we have now that so many others are still mm. fighting for. You know, you kind of owe it to yourself to build a life that makes sense and is yours and suits you, really. Like, you know, it's a beautiful thing to be able to have. But it's a uh, process, I think, for a lot of people. It's, it's a big process. I think it's, you know, I say it's not notional and it's not fixed because, you know, I'm not saying that, like, you know, everyone's just going to do the whole, so like, but being able to just sort of say, oh, this just feels right today. That's what it is. And maybe it'll change in future and maybe it won't. Maybe I liked cow's milk when I was a child and now I like soy. We just change over time and I think it's about embracing that. I think sometimes in our community space, we have lied to ourselves or we've made the mistake that there's a straight line mm-hmm. between where we're going. Mm-hmm. And in actual fact, that is not the case because if we are going to move forward, there is going to be times where we take a step back. Absolutely. And we get placed back and then we move forward. Absolutely. And I don't think 
it is something we should beat ourselves up for. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, everyone wants to feel powerful and in control of their lives, but you know, like social change takes a ton of time. Like, you know, you've got to, there's so many different pieces that have to be taken into account here is that depending on the government of the day, it depends on like funding, it depends on ability to organize, it depends on your own self-esteem and your own capacity, capacity of community and people around you as well. It takes a ton of time to create change because a lot of the time you have to change people's minds and culture change takes forever you know some of the reforms that we're even seeing now in australia the rate at which they're happening is incredibly quick for the from the time of when they've actually started to get attention to the reforms that are going through whether they're going to be successful or not is a different situation but they're moving but then others are just taking forever or they've just been sidelined. And that's unfortunately just a hard reality of human rights and culture change and social change. It just takes a really, really long time. There must have been a time in your life, because if you look back at what we've been talking about, your upbringing to where you are now, where do you find the voice to be able to be an instigator of change and standing up and going, you know what? I can speak out. Um, yeah, my friend died unfortunately was the big part of that um and you know he suicided and that was a massive ripple in all of us who were affected by that like i had a subsequent breakdown after that and then through a lot of therapy and a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of recovery you um rebuilt and then went right this is enough not doing this again let's do something about it so you know i started getting much more involved in mental health advocacy mental health activism got an opportunity to go to south africa to do an internship with oxfam within lgbt rights and then you know started building up a skill set started like actually trying to understand a lot more about what my community goes through every single day all around the world and just how everything's just so deeply linked within itself. Was that about your protection as much as it is protecting other people though? Because I think, you know, you've talked about attempted suicide for yourself over the mm. years and now this happens to someone that you know. Mm. So then is this change of wanting to arm yourself with the right information, is that about your own self-preservation as much as it is helping others? I don't know if it's as clear cut as that. I think part of it is actually no, like to be quite honest, like given this is in 2010 and I was just having an absolute of a year. It was just yeah, it was just incredibly hard. Like I probably would have had a breakdown regardless of whether or not my friend had taken his own life or not. It's a big straw of the camel's back. Though. It's big. It's a big one. Absolutely. <laughs> But I do think that that definitely sped up the process. Absolutely so. And, yeah, I was already so mentally unwell at that time, just, like, not willing to acknowledge it, not wanting to take anything to account, not wanting help, not wanting to go to therapy or just be – or just even just acknowledge that I was, like, deeply, deeply, deeply depressed. Like, I was depressed. I was definitely alcoholic at the time as well and just, like, barely surviving financially that, like, all the signs would point to, you're pretty f***ed. Like, it's a situation to be in. 
so I think in you know, Stuart's passing with that, part of it was just like, well, I need help now because it probably would have been me otherwise. Like, that's kind of where my head was at. It's just so like, you got to get your together because you can see how awful this is affecting yourself and how much this is affecting everyone else around you. Get your together. Like, if not for you, for them. Like, that's what you need to do. Arm yourself, equip yourself, get your together because this can't, this needs to be the only one. I would have rather it was none, but one's happened. So let's go. Be that person. Get yourself together. Understand this system. Help yourself and help others. So I think it was a bit of yes and a bit of no. It just, mm. uh, I know, it's, as you can tell, it's very complex. I think that you're incredibly powerful. And I think to be this strong, you must have some people around you or things around you that you've built into your life to give you that strength. What are those things or who are those people? It's quite cliche, but I think there is so much truth in cliche all the time as well. Is That's one of the most beautiful things about being queer is that we have, hopefully, everyone has this, which would be ideal, but you have an opportunity to pick your family. What do you look for when you pick your family? What traits do you look for in people when you go, Jacob, what's a friend? It's the same thing that I would look for in a person in any capacity in my life is that I want someone who can be willing to not expect me to be perfect. Being able to be messy. I don't mean like drunk messy. I ne- Like I'm going to have bad days. Life messy. Life messy. Like I will just have a really bad mental health day, week, month, year. I need to know that I can come to you about that if I'm having a bad time. I want to know that you can sit with me in the horrible bad times and celebrate me in the good ones and not make me feel bad or good either way when we're just being mundane. Are those people hard to find? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. I think one of the hardest things I've had to learn over my very, very intense 28 years on this earth, this time around anyway, is you have to be selective about who you let in. And it's okay to be selective. And not apologise for it. And not have to apologise for it. I need to unpack a few things with you Mm. because you have been in so many different spaces. So we're going to take some time (laughs) to unpack this. But you've got a long list of achievements in the LGBTI space. You've put your time and energy into aid and development, LGBTI advocacy, gender equality, startup consultancy, higher education, human rights, youth development and international policy. Amazing. There's more. You sit as an executive member of the Commonwealth Gender and Equality Network. And in 2016, we talked a lot about this before, but you were one of two Australians who won the Queen's Young Leaders Award for your work in suicide prevention. So it's because I think in lots of ways that you're a high achiever. Is there a come down for you for when you do these things? I've had to learn the hard way (laughs) with, you know, you can't do everything. You can't be everything to everyone either. What I will say just as advice, but also very much in answering the question learned experience, healthy boundaries, fundamentally important. You can't give to others what you don't have for yourself. You just can't. You cannot fill from that empty cup. I think in some ways, because you are a high achiever and you've had all of these things happen to you, you kind of have to stop yourself from thinking, I've got to outdo the next thing Absolutely. as well. Like you can't go, okay, well, I've made a huge achievement and boy, I feel great right now. So now I need to keep trying to outdo it because that's exhausting. What was the process that you put into place earlier this year when you first came back 
from being overseas and for going to England to meet the Queen? Like, when you come back from that, what happens to you? Let me tell you a story. Woo. Like, when I came back from... Um, I wrote this uh, um, experience piece for Star Observer in 2017, actually about living with PTSD, and so I detailed this there. Um, but I will say again, it's like, I came back from being the Queen, and I had... I was exhausted. It just felt like all of these safety nets were just crumbling around me, and I absolutely collapsed. I was absolutely exhausted. So got my ass back into therapy is what I had to do. I still have the same therapist now, like for the past like three years. And it's like trying to, like I had to learn a ton of strategies because it was that thing of just sort of like, why, you know, questioning, why am I pushing myself so hard all the time? Like, who am I trying to prove this to? And, you know, it was me. I had to prove this to me because I didn't think I was, you know, important enough, smart enough, good enough that I had to keep overachieving, overachieving, overachieving. Um, and then being like, okay, cool. Like I need to think about like, if I'm like dating people, for example, it's just like, do not date someone who is just enamored by what they see in the media or by, you know, or who just slides into your DMs on Insta. It's just so like, no, like they, if they're not going to be here and actually support you through that, no, don't date them. Simple as that. Cut that off. I've been single for the past year and I gotta say like I'm very refreshed and I love it because <laughs> it's just so nice to just be like oh no one's like where I need them to be for me right now and that's okay that's well, really it's really an good. important thing to know to yourself why enter a relationship just because that's the only person there absolutely and then when you have to cut that person out of your life it still hurts yes because yeah <laughs> Even taking a pimple off your face is going to cause some pain. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. Like, oh, I like that one. Oh, there we don't go. Don't eat the chocolate bar. If any of my exes are listening, you're just a pimple that I squeezed off my face. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to you. Not hoping you're yeah. doing well. Actually, no, we have to say, you know, I said that to my partner the other day. I was like, he was talking about someone that caused quite a bit of pain in our life. Mm. And he was like, I hope that person doesn't succeed. Mm. And I was like, no. That's the opposite. Like, if you're holding on to someone else not succeeding, Mm -hmm. they are going to keep succeeding Mm -hmm. and you will never move forward. Absolutely. You're hanging on to the wrong bag of energy. Absolutely. Chances are they aren't even thinking about you. And that's exactly it as well. So I hope all of my exes have not been paying attention or thinking about me. Hope you're doing well. Cheers. (laughs) Shuckers and Illy. What, though, is your level or how do you celebrate success? Because, interestingly enough, a lot of people that have sat in that very chair going through word for word will value success through fame or fortune Mm. or gratification from Mm. the general public. What things do you look for to give yourself the, yeah, you're doing it right? Um, I have started making a list of things that I did. Each year. So it could be, you know, I'm the feature writer for a magazine for that particular month, or I did a really, really important interview, or, you know, I spoke to a thousand young people and inspired them. But then it's really small things that are still really important is that I made someone laugh today. You know, I checked in and had a really hard conversation with someone who was just having a really bad time. I listened. I made food. I ate food. Yeah, there's a saying that, like, you know, a small act of kindness, you know, doesn't go astray in a harsh world, but any act of kindness is significant. It's not about big, it's not about small, it's still an act of kindness. And that's the stuff that I have to take into account as well, is that, you know, like, I've just applied for my PhD. 
to just pile that on. <laughs> and that's like seven years of research that I'm going to be doing with that. But that is for me. That's not to chase it. That's not to just be so like, I need to keep going and just do all these bigger, more important things. So it's like, well, I just want to do that for me. And when I achieve that, that will be a goal for myself. That's just what it will be. I think I've learnt over the past couple of years that if we're really thinking about this, like I've only been in this massive international space for three and a half years and you and I look at the immense change I've been able to lead, contribute to what kind of normal person does that? I remember one of my baristas once was just like, you, you're just not a normal person. You just don't have normal people problems. And I was like, no, I don't. Like, you know, I got into a fight with a celebrity, like not on Twitter, like over the phone, <laughs> like just had each other's number. I was just like, the thing that you said was really transphobic. And what I just need you to understand with this is X, Y, Z, 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 Z. And it's just sort of like, okay, I hope you have a great day, Cheryl Crow. But you know, it's just, it wasn't her. <laughs> I have to sort of take stock of that and just sort of go, people, aren't going to understand the intensity or the ridiculous nature that is your life, Jacob. That's just not what it's going to be. And you can't expect them to just completely understand the ridiculousness that is your life. What you can do is take stock of what you do because those people can't validate that. You're an excellent communicator though. And, you know, you set a standard of what I think you believe people should do. How do you cope setting such a high standard, but they're not getting it back from people day to day? Um, Look, it's a really good question. I think I have to remind myself that the way in which I communicate is not standard (laughs) for so many people. One of the big things I've started doing with friends of mine is saying, what I need you to do, if if I'm having a really bad day or something's just gone to absolute shit, please do not try and fix it. Do not try and swoop in and say, well, what about or have you tried or could we do and try and fix it, which is a hard thing because that's what we're kind of taught to do. And there's a phenomenal animation that's going around at the moment. And I do apologize because the name of the expert in it escapes me, but she's a grief counselor and that's her study. And she points out, and I feel this a lot, and this is what I try and give to my friends and those who are really close to me, is that just acknowledge that I'm having a shit day. Just acknowledge that I'm in pain. That's all I need you to do. That's that small thing. And just say, I see that that's really hard, and I'm sorry. And I'm here for you. That's it. Like, I don't expect you to get it, but I would like you to offer to sit in my with me just for a little bit, or make me a cup of tea, or just something like that. Like, that would just be just that that tender little act of care, that's what I need. I can handle everything else. Now, if I am struggling, I need something more from you. I'll probably ask it. But I don't need you to try and fix everything. I just need you to sit with me and just let me know that this is valid, that my feelings around this and how I'm thinking about this is real and honest and okay. Where do you think that comes from, though? Where do you think people's belief that they have to solve your problem comes from. Like, you get it from people all the time. Yeah. I mean, it could be when we're kids and we're told you see someone having a bad day, go and ask if they want a hug. I think we respond a lot of the time when people are in pain and, you know, we, we try and fix things. Not out of trying to be, you know, malicious or, you know, ignorant or anything like that. It's because none of us like seeing someone hurt. We just don't. It's a different situation when, you know, you're in public that can be quite different but when you see someone that you care about 
very, very close to you is in pain, you just you want to take the pain away. Like, that's what we all want to do. But we haven't worked out, though, that we can just sit there and listen. Well, this is the thing, right, is that often what's better for a lot of us is actually just feeling the pain. That's just what we need to do sometimes and actually just deal with it. Time heals all wounds. Is the saying goes. But I think it's being able to... Again, just sit with people and just sort of say, well, you know, what do you, like, I, I would love to ask you the million dollar question of what do you need? But, you know, when we're in pain and we're in struggle, we don't know. We've got no idea. So, so, or like the answer is just so out of our control. It's just so like, well, how on earth would we, like, I, can't, I can't do that. Like, I can't change time. I can't bring someone back. I can't do any of that. But what I can do is I can make you a cup of tea. Do you want a hug? What are we doing after 12 months on after marriage equality? And I was trying to explain this the other day to a friend of mine and I worked out a really good analogy for you. Mm. And that is that Alanis Morissette and Natalie Imbruglia, they came out with a commercially viable CD that was a huge success for them, Jagged Little Pill and Left to the Middle. And then the next album that they came out with was their follow-up, which was not as commercially viable. It was a more complex album where issues were less to be understood and more personalised and probably weren't as easily understood by the wider community. So I kind of feel like that's where we are now, where marriage equality was a debate that was more commercially viable. And then now we're at a stage where we are looking at the smaller, but probably more complex and more needed topics. And that cannot be summarised into a pop CD. as highlighting those things for you a priority? It's a really good question. Probably won't be at the forefront of a lot of those movements because I don't need to be, but I will be supporting them as much as I can. And I will say that people are welcome to actually slide into the DMs if you need support and actually understanding like civil society or like how to reformalize some of your like activist work or anything like that. Like that's what I can definitely do. I can definitely support those very hard to do niche wicked problems. Like those are the things that I can help work on. I do think that, you know, the, what we saw with the marriage movement, I don't know if I would call it marriage equality, given how many states and territories are still yet to update their state and territory laws to recognize, you know, no-fault divorce for, like, you know, trans individuals who are actually, like, you know, updating and getting their stuff together around, like, intersex rights, for example. <laughs> just, like, some key issues there. Or even just, like, you know, governments actually admitting how traumatic it actually was for people. And I know, like, apologising would be super ideal, but I don't think we're going to get to that anytime soon. But I do think that, you know, what it was is that and it was, it's such an uncomfortable thing to talk about because there's so much pain that communities are still feeling about this is that so many of us got pushed to the side and said, you will wait your turn. I know I definitely felt that. I definitely got told that by quite a few people, which was very interesting and some very uncomfortable conversations. Because I'm not sure if we're aware here, but I will definitely fight you on that. (laughs) So there we go. Like, do not try and cut me down. Do not try and cut my communities down. I will defend that. Absolutely so. That's People in those positions that did that to you, can you, without saying who they are, but can you say what position of power they had? Uh, Oh, definitely, like, very high visibility. 
in a lot of cases. Like, they're the kinds of people who may not have necessarily gone along for the ride the entire time and may have just sort of jumped in very last minute. I don't think they're inherently bad people. I don't think, like, I'm not going to attack my communities for the sake of just, you know, being salacious. But what I will say is that, you know, if you're going to share the acronym, there should never be a hierarchy in that at all. None of us are free until all of us are free with that. And it's bullshit to prioritize one thing above another. Like, I understand the need behind it. I understand the importance behind it. I understand the legality behind it. I understand that so many people were fighting for it for such a long time. And I don't blame community for this. I blame the governments and the straits who made us push ourselves into being palatable and passable to finally be considered decent enough, not even good enough, but decent enough, that we were just like them. That's the thing that I'm really off about, is that for those of us that weren't palatable, that weren't easy, that weren't convenient, we were the ones that were pushed aside with all of that. And also and that's put, absolutely probably not the on. most under attack underneath the no campaign. Massively so. Ah, oh, can we talk about like trans kids? Can we talk about that during that? Horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Also recognizing too that like during that time that that debate was going on, I hate even calling it a debate because that legitimizes it. During that time in which the government of Australia publicly funded an opinion poll that had zero boundaries around it because they were like during that time, like there were two important communities that had incredibly important dates during that survey period. One was the intersex communities of Australia. They had two important dates come up. The other one was that it was trans awareness week during that time as well. And there was just very little visibility about that. There was just no time given to that. And I still saw that this year when it came to, like, the anniversary of Yes. So many people were so happy celebrating it. And, yes, celebrate it because we did it. Like, that's great. Just got to be able to take into account that so many people were thrown under the bus or invisibilized or told to wait. Like, we just do not do that. Community does not do that. And maybe this is just me, like, having such an unrealistic expectation. But what I will say is, mate, like, just just say sorry. Like, I don't blame people again. Like, I don't blame community members for having to prioritize certain things. It wasn't a choice that we really made with them. We really had at the end of the day. We kind of just had to do it. If we didn't formalize, if we didn't move, then it just wasn't going to happen. Like, we saw enough. We got given a fucking awful opportunity and we just had to make the best of it. So be it. Just so be it. But in doing that, you just have to recognize that people were left behind. You just have to recognize that. And it's not good enough for community to have secondary thoughts. Is there a message that you have for the queer community that might be listening to this right now? Advice for the wider community. (sighs) Please don't apologize for being yourself. I think there's this beautiful thing where, you know, we get told all the time to, you know, not be too edgy. But if you round out your edges, you round out yourself. Apologize when you hurt someone, like apologize profusely. 
because you don't get to determine how someone feels. Well, Jacob Thomas, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us on Word for Word. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.